0: Support for this podcast provided by Wisconsin Historical Society Press, proud publishers of Madison in the Sixties by Stuart Leviton, an absorbing and evocative account of 10 years that changed the city forever. To order Madison in the Sixties and other beautiful books that share our state's centuries-long history and culture in service to the mission of the Wisconsin Historical Society, visit wisconsinhistoryorg WHS Press. Hello again, friends, and welcome to Madison BookBeat, your listener-sponsored community radio home for Madison authors, topics, book events, and publishers. I'm your host, Stu Levitan, and you have tuned in on a very special show because our guest today is Madison's favorite journalistic son and my most frequent guest, David Marinus. As most proud Madisonians know, David grew up on the West Side, the son of Capital Times editor Elliot Marinus, and University of Wisconsin Press editor Mary Cummins-Marinus, and graduated from West High in 1967. But to the rest of the world, he is a best-selling author and an associate editor at the Washington Post, where he won the Pulitzer Prize for national reporting in 1993 for his coverage of presidential candidate Bill Clinton, and was part of the Post's team that won the Pulitzer in 2008 for its coverage of the Virginia Tech shooting. I've had the pleasure of interviewing David about several of his best-selling books, most recently, A Good American Family, The Red Scare, and My Father, about the aforementioned Elliot. We've also aired conversations about his books, Barack Obama, The Story, Clemente, The Passion and Grace of Baseball's Last Hero, Once in a Great City, A Detroit Story, Rome 1960, The Summer Olympics That Changed the World, and the book that hits closest to home, They Marched into Sunlight, Vietnam and America, October 1967. And I only wish I had a show like this when he published When Pride Still Mattered, A Life of Vince Lombardi. Today, we're going to do something different and talk about a book that hasn't even been published yet, because David has only just finished writing the main text, and this is the first public conversation he's had about it. It's another in his series of using sports to examine larger social issues, this time the promise and plight of the American Indian in modern America, as exemplified by one of the greatest athletes of the 20th century. The book is Path Lit by Lightning, The Life of Jim Thorpe, and you can look for it from Simon & Schuster late next summer. But before we talk about Jim Thorpe, we're going to take a few moments to preview something that's also very near and dear to David, the Cap Times Idea Fest, a week-long series of panels and interviews on reckoning with change. It kicks off a week from tonight. As always, it is a great pleasure to welcome back to Madison Bookbeat our friend, David Marinus. Great to be with you, Stu. You're going to be moderating panels on race and sports with Tony Smith Thompson, the ESPN's Howard Bryant, Dave Zirin from The Nation, on Donald Trump with your fellow Pulitzer Prize winning colleagues from The Washington Post, Philip Rucker and Carol Leonig, on climate change with two more Pulitzer Prize winners from The Post, Juliet Eilperin and Bonnie Jo Mount, and doing a one-on-one on on dark money in politics with another award-winning journalist, the New Yorker's Jane Mayer. That's some pretty heavy lifting for someone who's been working on his own book all summer and in fact, just finished a few days ago. Why is the Idea Fest such a big deal to you that you'll spend your last weekend in Madison working so hard?
1: Thanks for asking that question, Stu. I mean, I grew up with the Capitol Times. When I was a kid, you know, I spent a lot of time in that messy newsroom up on South Carroll Street. My father was the first a reporter there, then city editor and finally executive editor of the paper. And you know, my last book, A Good American Family is about our, my father and our family's struggles during the Red Scare when my father was called before the House Un-American Activities Committee. And the book ends with him being hired by the Capitol Times. And it was really only uh, when I wrote and finished that book, that I had a full understanding of how that newspaper and this city, Madison, saved my dad and our family. And so I felt an even stronger commitment than I ever had before to paying back for that. And one of the main ways that I can do that is through this Idea Fest, which has grown over the last five years and which I've really wanted to be a part of and help make a success. Um, and so, you know, I, I've drawn on many of my uh, friendships and acquaintances over the years, uh, largely on the East Coast to bring in people uh, who I think Madison would love to hear from.
0: I share to a certain degree your sense of appreciation because it was Dave Zwiefel giving me the chance to work for the Capital Times that has defined my life. Uh huh. Yeah. Two of the panels are, as I noted, are comprised of colleagues from the Post, which, as you noted, continues a theme from previous years. How involved are you in identifying and recruiting presenters?
1: Sometime in the early summer, I usually meet with Paul Fanlin, the the publisher of the Capital Times, and we talk about what I could bring to the event. So, you know, I'm the one who who's thought of these you know, four of them, the ones, the, all the ones that you mentioned. Um, I actually didn't know Tom, Tony Smith Thompson before, but when I recruited, first I started with uh, Zyron and Howard Bryant. Zyron, because I knew he was just completing a book called The Kaepernick Effect, which I thought was fascinating, dealing with all of the other people, uh, athletes uh, in high school and college and the pros who also took a knee in support of racial justice and what happened, why they did it and what happened to them in doing so. That book is actually coming out right as the Idea Fest is being held. And he wrote wrote about uh, Tony Smith Thompson in that book and as did Howard Bryant in his brilliant book, The Heritage, which is about sort of the role that black athletes have played in the struggle for racial justice over the decades and in his book of essays, uh, Full Dissidents. So they're the ones who brought in Tony Smith-Thompson, which I thought was great. Um, but I, I know both of the other guys um, and have great respect for their, um, for their dissidents, <laughs> for, the, you know, for the way they speak out on things and, and tell hard truths. Um, so that's how that one came about. The others, I've worked with Juliet, Eilperin, uh and Rucker and Carol Lennig for, for quite some time. Um, Carol and Phil, I did a, a, a virtual interview with last year when their first book on Trump came out. And so it seemed only natural that I would do a follow-up with them. And they both agreed to come to Madison um, this time, uh, which they couldn't do last time. And, and to be honest, you know, we're taping this on a Friday, September 3rd. The uh, Idea Fest is to be held Friday night, uh, September 17th, and mostly Saturday, September 18th, Carol and Phil are to come for the Friday night event, along with John Nichols interviewing Sarah Nelson, the great labor leader from the flight attendants union. And then the others that I do will be Saturday, along with several other fascinating panels as well. Um, But... Everything is fluid in COVID times. So, you know, at this point, we're still going forward with uh, other virtual interviews and these would be live at the at the Union Theater. But, uh, you know, we have to, I guess you're running this on, on the following Monday. I don't know whether we'll have a decision by then. Um, whatever we do, we'll we will do these interviews and people will be able to see them either live or virtually in some fashion.
0: And actually the, the festival, Starts on the thirteenth, so it'll be the thirteenth through Friday. Will be all virtual. That's all virtual, and then right. hopefully Friday and Saturday will be live and important. Right,
1: but who knows? Seven, you know, you have to be first. honest about that.
0: How important is it for newspapers to do things like the Idea Fest, both for public education about issues and also brand development?
1: Well, you know. Um, you know, you're calling them newspapers, <laughs> which is a, becoming a quaint term, right? I don't know what they are anymore, but but the Capital Times, you know, um, quite a while ago, it went uh, online with only a Wednesday print version tucked inside or separate uh, from the other newspaper in town. It's had to reinvent itself in so many ways. and. And I think it followed the model of the Texas Tribune in Austin, which very successfully went online or started as an online operation and developed an incredible idea or festival of its own. And I think it's, you know, I I don't like the word brand or branding. You know, that's from the advertising world, which is anathema to me, but, but I guess that's the word. Um, but it certainly helps um, but what I think Paul and Kr- Paul Fanlin and Chris Murphy and I are interested in is um, the world of ideas and substance and that's what the idea fest is all about it's about a discussion of our world our city our state um, our politics at this moment
0: well on that point what do you say to someone who says look there's there's so much money and partisanship and result-oriented judges who have so perverted politics that there's no honest debate, there's no ability for an individual citizen to really affect um, anything and have an impact. So why even bother paying attention other than intellectual curiosity? Why do I need to know about something that I can't do anything about?
1: Well, that's a pretty fatalistic attitude, Stu. Well, that's, that's I, I mean, I, you know I mean, I have to confess that what's happened over the last several years has made me feel that I was naive for much of my life about the real threats to democracy. But feeling naive about it is not feeling fatalistic. I mean, I think that, um, one can never give up the struggle. That's what life is all about. And so the more you know, the more effective you can be in fighting back against the forces um, that are trying to haul this country back into 19th century.
0: You referred a moment ago to the other newspaper. Do you, do you ever think back to 1948 and wonder what a much better world this would be if Mr. Evview had taken the morning and given the other paper the afternoon? You know, he thought he was
1: being smart at the time. I mean, that was the era when, when Madison was full of, uh, you know, Gishold workers and Oscar Mayer employees who read the Capital times after they got home from work at four o'clock in the afternoon. That's the way newspapers worked and afternoon papers were the thing. And then of course uh, the world changed and morning newspapers became the thing and now no newspapers are the thing, you know. So, yeah, I mean, I, of course, um, for my family and for for so many different reasons, I wish that it, that the Cap Times had had been the morning paper. But you know, every paper's got to adjust to a new world now, so that means a little bit less.
0: You just finished your fourth book on sports about Jim Thorpe, which we'll talk about in a little bit. And I know you're very excited about that panel with Dave Zirin and Howard Bryan and Tony Smith Thompson. Yes. What is it about sports that you find so interesting and important? Well, I find
1: it interesting just inherently because I'm interested in sports. Um, and I like the drama of sports. And, you know, I, I love baseball just as baseball, uh, football, I have contradictory feelings about. I mean, I think it's a dangerous, deadly sport that I can't quite wean myself from because of the Green Bay Packers mostly. But what I, the reason I write about sports and think it's important, let me back up and say, you know, a lot of people say, well, that's the toy section of of a newspaper and it has no meaning. I, I completely disagree with that. And I think that that sometimes politics can be trivial and sports can be socially important. And I think if you look at modern America from Jesse Owens to, to Muhammad Ali and Rayford Johnson and Tommy Smith and John Carlos to Colin Kaepernick uh, with Jackie Robinson as the, the guiding light of all of that, um, you see how sports has affected and helped shape and improve America, and especially in terms of social justice and now gender justice. Um, so I think it's, I, I write about sports not because I'm, I want to write about a coach or a, an event, but because I want to use the, the subject or the event. To draw on larger themes about American culture and
0: society and social change, and it's no coincidence that every athlete you just cited was is black.
1: Well, yeah, uh, they are, uh, and uh, you know I've also written about Roberto Clemente, who's both black and Latino, and now I'm writing about Jim Thorpe, who is uh, an American Indian, a Sac and Fox from the Sac and Fox Nation of Oklahoma. It's not that there haven't been, uh, my son Andrew is, is writing a book about the 1976 women's Olympic basketball team, the first one, primarily white women. And, you know, I think that, that, that women have, have been in, in the vanguard of, of social change through sports as well.
0: Andrew's really carved out a niche writing about sports and society. He's written about sports and sexuality, sports and race, sports and anti-Semitism. Now, sports and feminism. When does he get to be on a panel? He's doing a
1: virtual panel. Um, he would have been. He,
0: he's he's actually the moderator of the virtual
1: panel on on sports and uh, and gender. I didn't. I mean, it, this is personal, but. Um, It's his wife's birthday uh, that weekend, so I didn't want him coming up here
0: (laughs) for many reasons, but that's the main one. That's right, that you're a conscientious father-in-law. Yes. Elliot was, as you say, a sweet swinging lefty, both politically and at bat. Were you much of an athlete?
1: I played baseball in high school. I was a short, I was a a not so sweet swinging, but sweet fielding shortstop, (laughs) you know, I was a decent athlete, not, so, you know, when I was uh, 12 years old, I I thought I would be the shortstop for the Milwaukee Braves, Um, but that dream, like, millions of other kids, that
0: dream faded immediately. Mm -hmm. And which do you prefer to talk about, sports or politics?
1: You know, it depends on what the discussion is. If it's, if it, you know, a lot of politics bores me actually, um, and I think it's transient and superficial. But there are other aspects of politics that are incredibly the most important things in our lives. So uh, it depends on on how how you talk about it. I can talk. Uh, I can bore people talking about sports. You know, I mean, probably know every player on the Milwaukee Brewers, and I'm wasting slash spending a lot of time watching them on television uh, this summer, which has been a great thrill because I can't do that in D.C.
0: Well, let's let's talk about sports, especially Jim Thorpe. But before we do, let's remind people that for more information about the Capital Times Idea Fest, then go to CapTimesIdeafest, all one word, dot com, CapTimesIdeafest.com. We're talking with David Marinus, whose upcoming book is going to be about Jim Thorpe, the great athlete. Why did you devote years of your life researching and writing about Jim Thorpe?
1: You know, this book had the longest germination of any book I've done, except maybe the one about my family. Uh, I recall and I write in my uh, acknowledgments that in 2003, I was traveling the country on a book tour talking about They Marched into Sunlight, my book about Vietnam. And on one of those stops, I was at the Denver Press Club. And a gentleman by the name of Norbert Hill Jr., who is an Oneida Indian leader from Wisconsin, was in Denver then working. And he came to that event. And afterwards, he said, David, your next book should be about Jim Thorpe. And I thanked Norbert and said, well, I'm I'm about to launch a book about Roberto Clemente and I've got a lot of other things in my pipeline. And plus, I usually don't do books that someone else suggests. It has to be something that comes from within me. But boy, that stayed with me. And he planted a seed and it finally started to grow uh, about four years ago. And I saw in Jim Thorpe, the two things that I'm looking for in any book that is about quote-unquote sports, but not really. Um, one is the dramatic story, or actually three things, a dramatic story built around sports achievements, an interesting life story, and a chance to write about something larger. And in, th- in this case, this book was my opportunity to write about the uh, Native American experience in America through Jim Thorpe's life. He was born in 1887. He died in 1953. The bookends of his life are fascinating. 1887 was the year that the Dawes Act was passed, which essentially took away millions of acres of of Indian uh, communal lands and tried to turn them into private property owners. It was a land theft of enormous proportions. 1953 was the year when Congress passed the Detribalization Act, which basically tried to eliminate reservations altogether. That was eventually overtaken again. But those are, you know, the, so all of Jim Thorpe's life was, was basically white people trying to tell Indians what was best for them. Um, at the center of my book is the Carlisle Indian Industrial School, the flagship Indian boarding school in America, which Jim attended on and off for nine years. It's where he gained his fame as an All-American football player and as a brilliant track and field athlete. It was from Carlisle he went to the Olympics in 1912 and won two gold medals. And the Indian schools were um, sort of the quintessential expression of the white father knows best, that we will assimilate and acculturate you under the motto, kill the Indian, save the man. Get all of the Indianness out of these people so that they can assimilate into white society. Indians survived that, um, although many of them died at these boarding schools, which is another part of my story, but they survived it without losing their culture as much as the white. And these are basically progressive whites who thought they were doing the Indians a beneficence, a favor with the, these educational schools. You know, life is complicated, uh, contradictory, and there are nuances, and some Indians, some uh, indigenous peoples did benefit from those schools, but at a great cost.
0: As I understand it, both of Thorpe's parents were of mixed-race ancestry, who baptized him and raised him as a Catholic. Could he have identified as non-Indian and had a different life?
1: Uh, yeah, I don't think so. Um, I don't think he was, you know, first of all, the whole issue of blood quantum is something that was imposed on Indians by white society. And then then the various nations, Indian nations, um, to get money from the federal government, developed their own um, sort of policies about how, how much Indian blood, uh, one had to have to be a, a member of a tribe but that's not something that the, that the Indian nations themselves considered before that so you know I, I think it's a it's a loaded question in that sense you know to talk about his mixed parentage he, you know his um, it's true that he, on both sides that on his mother's side there were French fur traders on his father's side um, there were uh, a British uh, grandfather, uh, and great-grandfather, um, but, but Thorpe uh, was born an Indian on the Sac and Fox Reservation, never thought of himself as anything but.
0: The generally accepted narrative is that he was an athlete of almost mythical accomplishment, endured a difficult childhood, suffered under racism, had his Olympic medals taken away for something that numerous white athletes did with impunity, fell on hard times when his playing time his playing days were done and had a terribly sad ending. Is the accepted narrative generally true? It's partly true. It's not generally true.
1: First of all, one of the uh, ways that, that the narrative is generally told is that he's not even the the, the hero in his own story. Um, you know, it was Pop Warner, the coach at Carlisle who, who developed Jim and then tried to save him. If you've ever seen the 1951 movie, Jim Thorpe All-American, Pop Warner comes off as the hero of that movie Um, and sort of the wise man who's trying to pull Jim out of his his funk and his troubles and his alcoholism after his playing days fade. In fact, Pop Warner is the villain of my book and I'm not gonna give all of that away, but if you read it, you'll see why. The other aspect of it is there's a, a famous poem that has in it the words, lo the poor Indian. And in the much of the early parts of the 20th century, um, that was a common phrase used by sports writers and other writers all the time to describe the Indian, no matter what the circumstance was. And there's a tendency with Jim to, to describe his life as a tragedy. I don't look at it that way. He he had a lot of problems. He was nomadic, moving from job to job and state to state for many, many years after his playing days. He did suffer with alcoholism and broken dreams and broken marriages. But when you really look at his life, the main story is one of persistence and survival against all of the odds. And that's, that's the interpretation that I bring to it without Without in any way diminishing the troubles that he endured, many of which were imposed on him and some
0: of which he brought about himself. Were there apocryphal stories you had to debunk?
1: Oh, God. I mean, you know, like, I mean, you know, I'm just writing a, a little preface right now and I talk about, you know, the American myths of George Washington, Paul Bunyan, Babe Ruth, and, and Jim Thorpe. You know, I mean, there are so many. You know, he told some of them himself, but, you know, most of them are apocryphes that that are, don't matter that much. I mean, there, there was a story that once he was playing baseball in Texarkana and hit three home runs, one one into each of three states, Texas, uh, Arkansas, and Oklahoma. Uh, it's a nice story, but he would have had to hit at 40 miles to get it to Oklahoma. <laughs> There's another story about when he was uh, you know one of the, the greatest game of football that Carlisle played was when they defeated Army at West Point. you know, the, the Indians beating the cavalry, basically, you know, on a level playing field finally. And the apocryphal story is that Thorpe ran a kickoff a uh, hundred yards back for a touchdown, but a penalty was called, and so they kicked off again and he ran it back again for a touchdown. He told that story himself. It's not true. I don't know. He was brilliant that game. Um, he totally demolished um, the army linebacker named Dwight David Eisenhower, but he, he didn't run back to kick to uh, kickoffs for touchdowns. I don't know where that story developed or how, but it's simply not in the records. And I've read, you know, 20 newspaper stories about that game and looked at all of the records that, at Carlisle and West Point, it just didn't happen. So, you know, there, there, there are dozens of apocryphal stories like that. Um, but the, the real mythology that I'm trying to break through in the book is the
0: mythology that the white man knows best about how to deal with Indians. And to his credit, I believe Dwight Eisenhower was acknowledged how great an athlete Thorpe was that day.
1: Oh, absolutely. Yeah, uh, I. I I knew that, that Thorpe had had demolished him and was the greatest athlete he'd ever seen. And wrote a you know he, he wrote a telegram uh, to Thorpe's widow right after he died, saying that,
0: among other things. You mentioned that you read a dozen or so, 20 articles about that game. What was your research process like, given the fact that you couldn't travel, the places one, one, of your, one of the hallmarks of your books is you go to where the events are, and sometimes that's Spain or Hawaii uh, or Rome, and sometimes it's Green Bay in the winter, to get an impression of what your subjects experienced. How much did COVID restrict your ability to do that, and how did that affect your writing?
1: It changed it a lot. I mean, I did start this book in 2018, so I had a year and a half pre-COVID. Luckily, where I did a lot of research, some travel, many archives from um, the Beinecke uh, Rare Book Library at Yale, which had a lot of records of the founder of of the Carlisle Indian School and and several other important documents. Carlisle itself, the University of Illinois Library had Avery Brundage's papers. Uh, We haven't talked about Brundage yet, but he's another villain of the book, who for decades uh, refused to restore Jim's records and Olympic gold medals. Brundage, it turns out, you know, you think of him as this obese, cigar-smoking pomposity. He was actually a a decathlete himself and competed against Thorpe in the 1912 Olympics, Uh, competed badly, and actually dropped out the great proponent of sport, uh, for its own sake, uh, quit the meat when he was losing it. I went to the University of Illinois for that and several other places, but I didn't get to Stockholm uh, where those Olympics were held. That was that was going to be a, a major trip where I would bring along my wife, Linda, and see Sweden for the first time and and go to the stadium, which still stands there, and to their sports museum, which is excellent. I wasn't able to do that. And so I wasn't able to go there, but in another sense I was because I found an amazing documentarian named Adrian Wood, who was hired by the Olympics, the International Olympic Committee, to create documentaries about every Olympics. And Wood found all of the old um, film of the 1912 Olympics done by a Swedish company hours and hours of it, and was able to restore it in a way where you feel like you're there. You know, it's not that herky-jerky motion of old film like when you see Babe Ruth running the bases. These are the athletes in their full grace, black and white. And I was able to watch hours of that and really feel like I was at those 1912 Olympics. So I I went there virtually as we did so many virtual things over the last year and a half. Whether it changed my writing, I'm not sure, but it certainly was unlike any other book I'd done in that sense.
0: And did you get a sense from the film just how great an athlete Thorpe was?
1: No, because there wasn't enough uh, film of of his of the decathlon events. There was wonderful film of him um, in the stadium being presented with his uh, laurel wreath and gold medal and trophies by King Gustav of Sweden. Uh, but those were fascinating to watch. I played those over and over again. There's film of, of a lot of the other events of, of uh, swimming and uh, tug of war and the marathon where Thorpe's classmate at Carlisle, uh, the little Hopi runner, Louis Tiwanima, Tuanima, what um, participated, and a little bit of Thorpe uh, doing a high jump and one other event, but not enough for to see there his full glory. There, there are films of him playing football that I've watched, and of course I have notebooks full of descriptions of other people watching him. One little thing: um, when he was at Carlisle, he took uh, courses in business, and his teacher was the poet, Marianne Moore, you know, the brilliant poet. Um, and she write, uh, She once did an interview with with George Plimpton because Plimpton of course loved literature and sports as well. And he talked to her about her, her days at Carlisle with Jim Thorpe and she described his athletic race in a way that I, you'll see in the book. Um, she also uh, did uh, an interview with Sports Illustrated later when, because she was a huge uh, Dodgers fan. And so the story was mostly about uh, her base, love of baseball, but she also talks about her Carlisle days with Jim Thorpe there. So the Rosenbach Library in Philadelphia, wonderful old library in, in uh, the old part of Philly. And all of her papers are there. And I read more from her own Half written memoir and other things about her Carlisle days.
0: We'll talk more about Thorpe as an athlete, but before we leave the Stockholm Olympics, when King Gustav presented him with his laurels, did Thorpe say, Thanks, King?
1: No, (laughs) of course not. (laughs) There are, I mean, talk about Apocrypha. There are so many apocryphal stories about Thorpe in Stockholm, um, you know, that he But he said, thanks, King, that the King later invited him to dinner and Thorpe declined. Never happened. Uh, There are a lot of things about those Olympics that that are apocryphal. You know, whether the King even said, you you, sir are the greatest athlete in the world. Who knows? I mean, it wasn't reported at the time by any of the newspapers, except for the Brooklyn had it a few days later, where they got it is unclear. The Associated Press didn't report that. How it got into the, I mean, he, he might have said it. I have no proof that he did. And there's certainly no one's ever said that Thorpe said, thanks, King, except for sports writers making it up later.
0: Did he, in fact, have. He, said someone, he, he says he said, thank you. Did someone steal his shoes and force him to run in somebody else's shoes that he picked out of a garbage? It's,
1: not, it's totally unclear whether anybody stole the shoes. They were missing, whether he misplaced them or not is not certain or they could have been accidentally taken. He did uh, have to jury-rig two shoes together with the help of Pop Warner, who was sort of a, a handyman who you know, spent a lot of time in the, um, in the workshops at Carlisle uh, devising cleats and different things like that. So they were able to put together two, a pair of mismatched shoes. One was larger than the other. Jim had to wear an extra pair of socks with one of the pairs of shoes. And with those, he competed in one event. It wasn't through the entire 10 event decathlon that he wore those mismatched shoes. Uh, He got back shoes shortly thereafter.
0: We're talking with David Marinus. His upcoming book is gonna be about Jim Thorpe. Your books frequently feature very significant subtitles, Clemente, The Passion and Grace of Baseball's Last Hero, Rome 1960 originally had the subtitle, the Summer Olympics that changed the world. That's now been modified to the Summer Olympics that stirred the world. Does Thorpe have an evocative subtitle?
1: Well, you know, the truth is that I've always rather had the the most evocative part be the title itself. So the titles that I most like are When Pride Still Mattered, A Life of Vince Lombardi, They Marched into Sunlight, once in a Great City, A Good American Family. Now, most of those have four words in them. And that's my good luck charm. So this time I prevailed and said, no, I don't want to call this Jim Thorpe. I want to use a more uh, evocative title. And the title is Path Lit by Lightning, which is a very, a, a version of his Sack and Fox name given to him at birth. And the subtitle is The Life of Jim Thorpe. But the title is Path Lit by Lightning.
0: And that's because of uh, some natural phenomenon that occurred at the, at the, around the moment of his birth?
1: Yeah, there was a, a thunderstorm,
0: a lightning storm when he was born. This is getting more Paul Bunyan-esque by the moment. <laughs> or, or, or should we actually say Paul Bunyan is Jim Thorpe-esque? <laughs> right, yes. Clemente Lombardi Thorpe are all deceased. The political people you write about, Clinton, Obama, Gore, Gingrich, are all still alive. Is that just a coincidence?
1: It's not a coincidence in the sense that I cover politics. So those books r- rose from my political life. I covered Bill Clinton before I wrote the book. I wrote about Obama before I wrote the book. Gingrich, I spent a a year with my colleague Michael Weisskopf covering the "quote unquote" Republican Revolution. Um, Al Gore. I did a series before the book. I guess I don't think it's a coincidence. I think that those that they came out of out of uh, different needs. I mean, for my sports books, I need to see the full the full meaning of a life before I'm going to write about it. I'm not going to write a book about Aaron Rodgers. I don't know what the meaning of it is, but I did understand the meaning of Roberto Clemente and Vince Lombardi and Jim Thorpe and of those Rome Olympics.
0: Is there a thread connecting them, connecting Clemente, Lombardi, Thorpe, and the athletes from Rome?
1: Well, the only thread is that I could find a way that they told more about Americans or the world and culture, and um, social change through their lives. Um, So with Lombardi, it was the mythology of competition and success in American life, what it takes and what it costs told through his story, as well as the story about leadership. With Clemente, it was the story of the role and meaning of Latinos in, in American life. And Clemente as that rare athlete who as a human being, as his talents weren't fading, although they didn't fade much. With Thorpe, it's my chance to write about the Native American experience. So, and Rome, it was the whole world as it was changing in 1960. So I'm looking for that larger element, whatever it is. They're not necessarily the same thing. I don't want to write the same thing over and over again, but
0: something that, that illuminates the world. Any sense of what they would all thought of each other?
1: Uh, well, I think that, you know, what is it? Game knows game, right? <laughs> That's what I think.
0: They would have understood how great each of them was. Do you remember when you first became aware of Jim Thorpe? Oh, well, you know,
1: from childhood. You know, had, another thing I write in, the, in my preface is that whenever I tell a friend, that I'm writing a book about Jim Thorpe, they'll say, oh, I read a book about him in fourth grade. (laughs) Right? Which to me says two things. One is that Thorpe was an archetype, the great athlete, and a stereotype, the noble Indian. Because when me and my my friends and I were in fourth grade, you know, there wasn't a very diverse reading list. So Thorpe was the Indian we wrote about, we read about.
0: Let's talk about him as an athlete The AP called him the greatest athlete of the first half of the 20th century, part of the inaugural class of the Pro Football Hall of Fame. Recap what he did to earn those accolades.
1: Well, it started at Carlisle, the Indian school in Carlisle, Pennsylvania, which when he was there and particularly during his best years of 1911 and 1912, Carlisle played the best schools in the country in football, most of which... Were Eastern schools that no longer are big football powers, but were then, you know, those included Penn, and Army, and Syracuse, which still plays pretty well, uh, and um, Harvard, and Carlisle would beat them all, and Minnesota in the Midwest, and University of Chicago, and Thorpe was the All American, the best player in the country uh, during that era. Uh, football players played both ways, 60 minutes. Thorpe was the left halfback, almost indestructible and unstoppable, ran like a thundering horse uh, with his knees up. He was impossible to tackle. Uh, Eisenhower got hurt trying to tackle him uh, in the Army game, as did Newt Rockne later uh, when they were both in the Ohio League playing professional football. So anyway, Thorpe was an All-American for Two years at Carlisle, before his senior year, he had already competed in track and field and was, uh, you know, a one-man team, basically, with Lewis Tawanema, uh, who was the distance runner. They could beat an entire opposing track team all by themselves, basically. Um, and he developed as an all-around track star, so he went to the Olympics to compete in the pentathlon, which is was five events. It no longer exists in that sense. And the decathlon of 10 events. And he easily won both uh, gold medals in both, setting records for his performances in both. Came back to Carlisle for his senior year where he was an All-American football player. Then he lost his medals uh, in a bogus decision uh, because he had played baseball in the Eastern Carolina League for a little bit of money at a time when all of the college athletes were playing minor league or bush league baseball but they were doing it under aliases and Jim Thorpe played under the name Jim Thorpe so it eventually came out and the powers that be took away his medals those powers being the American Athletic Union and the International Olympic Committee is coach, Pop Warner, who I described as the villain of the book, claimed that he didn't know about it, was innocent, but in fact he's the one who directed Thorpe to play there uh, and then lied about it for the rest of his life. So then when Thorpe uh, lost his medals and could no longer play football at Carlisle, he signed to play Major League Baseball with the New York Giants under the little Napoleon uh, McGraw and um, had a decent Baseball career, it wasn't his best sport by any means. He liked baseball. McGraw did, was not the right manager for him, was uh, constantly uh, not letting Thorpe play much. Uh, he went in and out of the majors and minors for the next eight years. But during that course of that period, he, pro football started to develop. He, he played for the Canton Bulldogs when they were the best professional football team in the world. He was their star, left halfback from 1915 to 1920. And he was the first president of what would become the National Football League because he was the most famous of the uh, pro football players when the league was formed. He went on to play football, baseball, and basketball as a traveling uh, semi-pro or pro uh, up until age 40 when he finally retired from football after playing for the Rock Island Independence in the National Football League. But he could do anything. He was a brilliant ballroom dancer. He could play lacrosse. He, you know, at one point, a, a hockey team tried to sign him because all the Indians skated at Carlisle. They had a pond there. There were great skaters. He could swim. He, he, was, he was the natural. There have been track stars who played football, there's Bo Jackson who played baseball and football as did Deion Sanders, but no one has put together uh, all three sports like Jim Thorpe did.
0: And I can't imagine he had any kind of decent training or decent equipment. I can only imagine how great he would have been with with modern, with modern a decent coach and decent equipment.
1: Well, that's why, you, especially the equipment and the nutrition and all of, and of the training methods That's why it's so foolhardy to try to compare athletes from different generations. You just can't do it. You can only uh, write about them and treat them in their times. And Thorpe was the best of his era. Uh, But yes, if he had, in this modern era, who knows what he would be like.
0: What did you learn that surprised you?
1: I never answer that question. <laughs> and I'll tell you why. Because I try to approach each book as though everything surprises me. Um, so, you know, the surprise comes day after day, week after week, you know, reading things, you know, on microfilm and going to archives and find, discovering little nuggets. There are things that I didn't know that I think are very important and about the boarding school experience about pop warner and his duplicity but i treat everything as a surprise
0: on that boarding school experience what apart from his accomplishments as an athlete what was his life like at the carlisle indian industrial school
1: well he really you know aside from the athletics he didn't like it and like uh Hundreds or thousands of other students who tried to run away several times and ended up in the in the uh, guardhouse. It was an old stone building built by the Hessian uh, Hessian prisoners during the Revolutionary War. That's the Carlisle Barracks was a Revolutionary War fort uh, before it was taken over for the Indian School, and then reverted to to the military after the Indian School was closed. Uh, but, you know, I mean, it was, um, it competed in athletics against other colleges, but it wasn't really a college. Um, there was vocational training. Um, he trained as in, as a tailor and a painter. There was some education, um, and he wasn't a bad student. He wasn't a great student. As I said, one of his teachers was Marianne Moore, which is just, you know, incredible to think about. There are two two little things in the book that I just love, just because of the coincidences of life. One is that Marianne Moore taught Jim Thorpe. The other was that in 1922 in Milwaukee, Jim Thorpe played a football game against Paul Robeson. You know, I I just to be on that field watching that game would have been the coolest thing in
0: the world. I'm doing this book on you know Madison 1932-2006, and I found promo of. Robeson coming to the Memorial Union Theater, and uh-huh. is identified as Paul Robeson, the lusty Negro singer.
1: Oh, of course. Well, you, can't, you can only imagine how full my book is of the ways that sports writers described Jim Thorpe and his, his uh, Carlisle teammates. And also Paul Robeson, he was the Negro giant, uh, described as the Negro giant end in that
0: game did the writers of the time acknowledge what an event it was to have Jim Thorpe and Paul Robeson in the same game or, or did they, or were they not Jim Thorpe and Paul Robeson?
1: Thorpe was Thorpe. Robeson wasn't Robeson yet. So, he, you know, there was another, some quarterback named McMillan from Louisville who was considered the, uh, the big star of the Milwaukee Badgers professional football team. Robeson played so well in that game he scored both touchdowns that he he was the dominant figure in the game but but beforehand it was Thorpe against McMillan
0: you mentioned briefly Avery Brundage who was one of the who is the main villain in your son Andrew's book about the 1936 Olympics in Nazi Germany I expect he'll play a somewhat similar role in your book as well
1: he was also the villain in my nineteen sixty Rome nineteen sixty book. I mean, he just keeps—you know—I can't get away from Avery Brundage. Uh, absolutely. I mean, for decades, first as the head of the United States Olympic Committee, and then as the president of the International Olympic Committee, Brundage completely disparaged uh, any attempts to restore Jim Thorpe's records and medals. Basically, made it sound like it was just a PR gimmick on the part of Thorpe and his supporters and that he was the one being portrayed as the villain, which he was, he was the villain, you know, but he was like, you want to me, you know, I didn't do anything. Why are they picking on me?
0: Have the medals and the records been sufficiently restored or is it still so, inadequate?
1: It's still inadequate. Um, in 1983, before the, in the lead up to the 1984, Summer Olympics in Los Angeles. Because of a change of leadership, um, William Simon, who was the treasury secretary under Richard Nixon, was then the head of the US Olympic Committee. And he was very supportive of Thorpe and pushed it to the IOC. And Samarank of Spain was then the president of the IOC. And they agreed to A modified limited hangout, so to speak, of of restoring Thorpe. They couldn't find the old medals, the original gold medals, so they made copies of them. They gave them to all of the uh, Thorpe children, his seven children, three daughters and four sons. They didn't return the trophies that he'd won because there was always an argument over, over whether those were really to be his or just sort of traveling trophies. But most importantly, they declared him the co-champion gold medalist with the, with the uh, athletes who'd finished in second place, the silver medalists who were given the gold medals after Thorpe was taken, his were taken away. And they never put his, his records into the book. They declared him the co-champion. But not, but not with the, the, his results. And so it's still sort of, a, it's a bogus uh, restoration. And there is still a movement to push, pushing for full restoration of his medals and records.
0: And in fact, those records were record setting records.
1: They were, although you have to acknowledge that in the decathlon, you know, the point system has changed over the years. And um, certainly the, the results, because of what we were talking about earlier about training methods and so many other, you know, nutrition and so on. They wouldn't be records today by even close, but, but in their era, they were incredible records, yes.
0: We've established his greatness as an athlete. Any sense of what he was like as a person?
1: Well, he was quiet. He loved to hunt and fish above anything else. He would have rather been doing that than playing football or baseball. Um, he did struggle with alcohol. It didn't define his life, but it, it hurt him at various points. Um, he was always on the trying to find his niche after sports. He wanted to be a coach. He wasn't. He would never got the coaching job that he wanted and felt he deserved. I think at one point I documented him living in 21 different states over the course of his career, uh, constantly on the move. He was very generous. He never had much money, but whatever money he had, he'd give to other people if they needed it. He was an activist for Indian rights, uh, especially in Hollywood. Um, when he became an actor out there, you know, a bit parts. Um, He fought against the Hollywood tendency to uh, put white actors in grease paint and call them Indians. He wanted real Indians to play those roles. He, for all of his troubles, his legacy of his family was one of wonderful activism. One of his daughters was the spokesperson for the, for the American Indians who took over Alcatraz in 1969. One of his great granddaughters is a lead, leader in the Back to the Earth Movement in Oklahoma uh, for indigenous peoples and, and you know, their farming methods. He, one of his sons became the chief of the Sac and Fox Indians in Oklahoma. And three of his sons were uh, officers in the American military one uh, fought in World War II and Korea and Vietnam. So, you know, his family has given a lot back to this country. And that's part of the Thorpe legacy as well.
0: All of which makes the existence of Jim Thorpe, Pennsylvania, even <laughs> sadder.
1: Well, it's, it's bizarre. Um, you know, that story of how his bones ended up in Jim Thorpe and how that the towns of Mock, Mock Chunk, and East Mock Chunk, Pennsylvania, changed their names to Jim Thorpe in a deal made with Thorpe's third wife, Patsy, who was—I uh, call her the—she was uh, a sort of a version of Harold Hill, the Music Man. Uh, Constant, you know, she wasn't quite a con man, but she was pretty close to it. Very manipulative and. And she's the one who made that deal. And his sons in particular fought very hard to, to bring him back to um, Sac and Fox Country in Oklahoma, which he told them is where he wanted to be buried, where his bones belong. Um, but they're still up there in, you know, in the Poconos, the, the entrance to the Poconos in Pennsylvania, where he would never set foot.
0: One of the few places in the country where he never was. Yes, exactly. You noted that he died in 1953, actually, the same month that Russ Feingold was born, which. Oh, that, there you go. There you go. <laughs> See, I, I know these things. So there could easily be people still alive who knew him. Are there? And did you get a chance to talk with them?
1: There are people who were kids who knew him. Um, But not many, uh, none of his contemporaries are alive. Um, None of his children are alive. And so you would have to be, 1953, you would, if you were born that year, what would you be now? You'd be be 68. 68. Right. So, you know, there are people who were children who, you know, saw him, but not, but no one who really knew him. Um, So, you know, in that sense, the, Interviews have been the least important part of this book, except for oral histories that I was able to accumulate.
0: Were there any good interviews or oral histories of him done at the time? There are many
1: done, whether they're good or not. Is, or No, they're good, whether they're accurate or not <laughs> is another question. So I have to deal with that. You know, one of the many, you know, a lot of interesting people came out to interview him. And the most interesting was Ernie Pyle. Ernie Pyle, before he went off, before World War II, obviously, because he was killed in World War II. He had a job as a syndicated columnist traveling in the country, just interviewing and talking to anybody he wanted to. Um, He he traveled with his wife in an old beat-up car, you know, sort of Charles Corralt, long before Charles Corralt. And he went out to Thorpe's sort of roadside, a house cottage uh, in suburban Los Angeles and spent a day with him and wrote about it. And that was pretty good.
0: And if you could interview Jim Thorpe, what would you ask him?
1: Everything, of course. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that, 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 that list is too long.
0: Okay. And finally, how long do we have to wait before we get to read the book?
1: Well, I'm still working on the, uh, preface. I just wrote the acknowledgments, actually. In October, I will spend a month doing the end notes, which are really important and really a headache, but I have to do them, and I never organize. I organize everything except the end notes really well, and so that's a constant process of rummaging through all of my folders to find out where I got something, and then the whole process will take until next august so the book will come out in late august
0: of 2022 no that's not too long so we can we can put it on our holiday 2022
1: um, oh absolutely you it, know it's you know you know i hope it goes all the way through the fall into the christmas season of 2022
0: yeah well i'll have to still have a radio show so we can have you back to, to talk on it after i get a chance to read it good <laughs> It is always a delight to talk with David Marinus. It's always a really exciting thrill to read a new David Marinus book, and uh, it's going to be a pleasure to hear David Marinus moderating panels with Howard Bryan and Dave Zirin and Tony Smith-Thompson, uh, Carol Leonig, Philip Rucker, Juliet Alperin, Bonnie Joe Mount, and interviewing Jane Mayer at the upcoming Capital Times Idea Fest. For more information on that, please go to captimesideafest.com. That's all one word. And for more information on David Marinus, davidmarinus.com. Uh, that's it uh, for us for this week, David. Thank you so much for taking time and uh, we appreciate everything you've done for Madison and journalism and America and, <laughs> all, and, and all the ships at sea.
1: All right, Stu, and I appreciate all you do for
0: books. Next week on Mass and BookBeat, we mark the Jewish High Holy Days with an encore presentation of our conversation with John Pollock about his book, Wisconsin, The New Home of the Jew. Until then, on behalf of News and Public Affairs Director Sholly Pittman and all of us here at Mass and BookBeat, I'm Stu Levitan. Thank you for joining us. Now as our friend Ben Sidron plays us out with a little bit of Little Sherry, please stay tuned for Alex Wilding White and All Around Jazz. You're listening to WORT, 89.9 FM, Madison. Listener-sponsored, Community Radio.